0: I want to thank you for the worship service already in progress. Sometimes we think about worship as only being the songs, or it's the sermon, but it's really all in one. Uh, sometimes the song sets this, the mood for worship, and I hope that's what has done today. You have your Bibles turned with me to First Peter. And I want to read the first 13 verses of that first chapter. And when you find your place in sacred scripture, would you mind standing as we read God's word together? Beginning in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth and goal, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, You believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to them or come to you searched intently and with great care, greatest care, trying to find out the time "'and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, "'when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. "'It is revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, "'when they spoke of things that have been told you "'by those who have preached the gospel to you "'by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. "'Even angels long to see into these things.' Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. May the Lord add his riches to the blessing, to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. You know, I'm excited about our worship services here at First Baptist But I'm reminded that anyone who comes into our presence could find the Lord Jesus as personal Savior, and I'm excited about that. I have heard about churches that were not that way. Heard about the fellow one time who had had a real good dose of salvation. Driving down the road on Sunday morning, he looked around to find a place where he could worship. And he saw this church sitting off on the edge of the highway, and so he pulled in parked his car, and went in. As it would have it, most of the people that were sitting in the church were sitting toward the back. The only place he could find was down near the front. So an usher came and, and ushered him down the front, and he took his place on about the second or third row. And the pastor got up to preach, and he, as he began to read his sermon, he ran across some passages of Scripture that the guy agreed with heartily. And so he said, Amen, brother. Preach all. There was dead silence in the church. And the pastor gained his, regained his composure, began to speak again, and finally he came to a, a place where the guy really agreed with him. He said, praise God. About that time, two ushers came, took him by the arms, and ushered him about the back of the church. One of them said to him as he exited the building, man, what's wrong with you? He says, I've got salvation. He said, shut up. You didn't get it here. <laughs> well, I'm thankful it's not that way at First Baptist Pelham. And I'm thankful that at least the Apostle Peter was excited about what he was going to share with the people. And I notice, you notice, if you will, that these verses are, are, are very uh, uh, to the point when it comes to what he's talking about. He's talking about hope. And uh, in your bulletin, I asked Miss Pat to put in an acrostic, H, heaven, Hour, promise for eternity. That's what Peter is talking about. Now, who is Peter? Well, there are four names given in the New Testament for the man named Peter. First of all, there's his Hebrew name, Simeon. There is his Greek name, Simon, used over 50 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And there is Cephas, by which the Apostle Paul called his name. And then there is Peter. And you wonder where that name comes from. If you look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18, that's the name that Jesus gave him when he called him to be his disciple. And so Peter was important. And dominated much of the New Testament scriptures. His role among the disciples, he was the leader. Uh, In that passage that I referred to in Matthew, he was the first one called to be a disciple. And his name always appears first in the lineup of disciples when they're named. He was kind of the spokesman of the group. And he's usually the one that was asking all the questions. He had hoof and mouth disease. He would stick his his, hoof in his mouth quite often. But one thing about Peter, he was always present uh, when all the important events occurred in the life and ministry of Jesus. For instance, he was there on the Sermon on the Mount to listen to what Jesus had to say. He was present at the healings when oftentimes they would encounter people who were sick. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there when Jesus raised the dead. He was there when they came and took Jesus away as they arrested him and put him on trial for his life. But unfortunately, he was also there in that very famous denial where Peter said, I do not know him. I do not know who you're talking about. I'm not one of his disciples. And Peter also was there when Jesus was resurrected from the grave and encountered him and said to him Peter do you really love me this is the peter that writes this epistle and he's writing about something that is dear to his heart and that is the uh, the uh, the promises that God had made to him and to all those who believe now peter was a very important dude among those disciples but uh, he was important in the church at Jerusalem. But unfortunately, uh, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, became the pastor of the church. And Peter's ministry lar- largely was toward the Gentiles. And uh, Peter uh, was very important in the life of the early church, but not so important uh, that uh, he could not write an epistle pleading for people to listen to what, had, what God had to say to them. And so in this epistle, we're going to find in the first 13 verses that Peter's writing about hope, uh, heaven, our promise for eternity. Now, what could be so important that Peter would write this epistle? Well, uh, uh, he was talking about God's elect, God's chosen people, now, at one time, the Jews were the only ones that could hold that title, God's chosen ones. But all of that changed when God sent His only begotten Son, His one and only Son here on this earth, that He might be the sin barrier for all mankind. And so, uh, there was those whom God had chosen out of the world. Now, when He uses that word foreknowledge there in verse uh, 2, uh, that's the word prognosis in the Greek. Now, we may not, I'm sure that's the word you're not using quite often, but I want you to understand the meaning of that word. When you are diagnosed with a disease and you go to the, to the doctor and you said, doctor, uh, what is my prognosis? The doctor is giving you what is the usual outcome of your case. But the word prognosis, uh, as far as God is concerned, is not the usual normal outcome, but it's the absolute outcome. You see, God is in control. And so when he talks about prognosis, he's speaking about the absolute guarantee to those that believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to compare that word down in verse 20 of the same chapter, uh, he talks about that God uh, chose his son, Jesus Christ, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. And so Peter is excited about the sovereign will of God. Now that's a, that's a brain teaser for most of us. The sovereign will of God and the free will of man. But I want you to notice that uh, that, uh Peter is more concerned about how the sovereign will of God relates to those who have been chosen by God. The promise of eternal life is the prognosis of God's choice. Uh, Peter encourages the elect uh, with hope. Hope is not just wishful thinking. It's just not holding out for the best results. Uh, it's, It's more than that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it says that our, our faith is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. In other words, uh, Peter knows that what God has promised to us is absolutely sure and steadfast. So I would ask Peter, tell us a little bit more here. Where did this hope come from? Well, he tells us in verse 3, uh, praise God, uh, Uh, Be to God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the first of all, the source of our living hope is in the new birth that Jesus has given to every single one that has claimed Him as Lord and Savior. And also, Peter is laying out a theological uh, foundations for his letter of encouragement. Because you see this time this time of the year, these years in which this uh, epistle was written, it was a time of great persecution under the Emperor Nero and later Domitian, in which they would hunt down Christians and kill them like wild animals. And they were all be often used as, a, as a, 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 an object of sport. And so Christians were under persecution, especially in those areas, that he names in verse 1, Galatia, Pontius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so Christians were under persecution. What did they have to be excited about? Well, Peter is going to tell us. We have been chosen by the Lord, and our new birth experience brings us a living hope. In the doxology of praise to God, Peter encourages believers to be reminded that the new birth gives them a living hope that is imperishable uh, in the future. Christians uh, could rejoice even though they face trials and tribulations. And you know, sometimes it's hard for us to rejoice when things are going wrong for us. We're often fair-weather Christians. You know, when things are going great for us, you you encounter somebody and you say, how's things going? Oh, man, they're going great, wonderful. Wonderful. Just got a raise in my job, just got a promotion. It's going great. All of a sudden, there's a problem that occurs in their life. How's it going? Man, you you just won't believe what's happened to me. We're usually fair-weather Christians. It's not hard to be excited and joyful when things are going great, but when things are going rough, that's where the test of time really occurs. And so Peter is encouraging those to be in uh, encouraged, even though they're facing trials and tribulations. So the new birth brings a living hope. The new uh, birth results in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we can have the new birth. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would have been in trouble. But because he is alive and remains alive and sitting at the right hand of God right now, He he is living, and we have a living hope. In fact, Peter uses this word six times in these passages, living hope. The new birth brings uh, the the living hope. But also, I want you to be reminded that the new birth bequeaths an eternal inheritance. Now, I had to look up that word, bequeath, uh, in the dictionary, I found out it means something that had been left by a will. How about that? So the new birth bequeaths to us, left by a will, an eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance. Not something that's just here for a time and gone, but for eternity. Now that same word is used in the Septuagint when it refers to Israel's promised possession of the land. So God gave Israel that land by a will, by a gift. He left that land in their possessions. Christians' inheritance cannot be destroyed by persecution. It will not spoil like overripened fruit. And Peter uses three words uh, in this passage that talks about our inheritance is being never-ending, uh, that it never perishes, it never spoils, or it never fades away. The inheritance is indestructible as God's holy word. It is kept in heaven for those chosen by the grace of God. So that's where it came from. And we would ask Peter, now, how safe is it? How safe is it? What's the security of this living hope? Well, the Bible indicates to us in verse 5, that our inheritance is banked in heaven. It's banked in heaven. Now, I don't have a lot of money in the bank, but when I go there, I expect to be there because the bank is supposed to be a place of security. And notice what he says our inheritance is banked in heaven. Uh, he says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God is watching out for your inheritance. Uh, Peter uses the word shielded as a military term. That simply means that it's, it's garrisoned within the city. Not only do you have the protection of the city, but you also have the protection of the military garrison. So our inheritance is in the middle of that. Your inheritance is under the maximum security guarded by God himself, Until the time in the future when that inheritance will be revealed to the children of God. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of safe to me. And then in our inheritance is praiseworthy. In face of grief and trials of life. Verse 6, he says, uh, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer uh, grief and all kinds of trials. It's it's praiseworthy in the midst of trials and tribulations. We can rejoice in spite of what's happening to us from the outside because inside we have an inheritance that will never fade and never perish. So it's praiseworthy. Uh, Knowing that our inheritance is absolutely secure in in the future, it reminds me of a, a a song that says my faith has found a resting place not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Our, Our inheritance is praiseworthy. In the midst of all the trials and tribulations that we face, in our life. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us to come to that place when things are not going right. But knowing what what God has in store for us ought to make us excited and happy. In fact, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what the Lord has prepared for them that love Him. So we ought to be excited about that. That ought to be something that we we praise God every day for. And then he says, a a proven faith is refined by various trials of life. Someone has said long ago, I I could not find the source of this, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. If your faith cannot be tested, then it cannot be trusted. He compares it with the refining fire of gold. Now, the refining of our faith burns out all the dross. And when you're refining gold, the dross is the impurities that should not have been there in the first place. And so when we have trials and tribulations and our faith is tried, God is simply burning out the dross that should not have been there in the first place. The refiner's fire burns away all the impurities. The testing of our faith proves our genuineness. Comparing faith to gold, contrasting pure gold and purifying faith. By faith, we receive an inheritance that can never, never perish. So, Peter, where would we get it? We got it through the new birth. How safe it is. God is watching over our inheritance in heaven. It's under maximum security in heaven. We don't have to worry about it. When we come to know the Lord as our personal Savior, that's what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place, and, and that word there we, in, the, in, the, in the Bible sometimes says, if I go away and prepare a place, in the Greek it says, since I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now that, uh, that uh, generated some questions. Thomas said, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life, I'm putting the I am in there. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So that kind of cuts out, the idea that there's many ways to heaven. There's many ways to, to have eternal life. Jesus said he was the only way. So we either believe that or we dispute it with him. I'm not here to argue with you about that. I'm just simply pointing you to the authority. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him. So what, what about this, this living hope? Here's the climax beginning in verse 8. The climax is an an experiential joy, experiential joy, something that you're experiencing yourself. It's not something that you're kind of getting in on. It's experiential joy for you. God accomplished salvation through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So believers' faith are not based on abstract knowledge of Jesus, but on a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, there's a difference. You say, what's the difference? There's a lot of folks that know about Jesus. For instance, around Christmas time, everybody knows about Jesus, the little baby born in a manger. They talk about it. We sing about it. In fact, it's gotten getting earlier and early, earlier every year. I think around July the 4th, they start praying Christmas music. That's so you run out and buy all your stuff real quick. And then somewhere around Easter time, they talk about Jesus who was crucified on a cross and he raised was raised from the dead. That's abstract knowledge of Jesus. What Peter's talking about is a personal relationship with Jesus. And there's a, lot of, there's a difference in that. There are a lot of people that have, uh, have abstract knowledge of Jesus, they know about him, they know what he said. And sometimes, even the atheists know what he said. But they don't have any personal relationship with him. And so you have to understand there's a difference between just knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus personally. Now, Peter would go a step further. Peter would say, believing is seeing, verse 8. Believing is seeing. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You see, Peter's writing to people who have never seen Jesus. He remembers when he walked with him, how he loved Jesus, how Jesus loved his disciples, how he loved people in the world. And he remembered all the great times he spent with Jesus And possibly he remembered that verse in John 20, 29 that said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And he's writing to some of those. Some of those in uh, Pontius and and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Those people up there that had embraced the Lord Jesus as personal Savior but was not even alive when Jesus was walking on the face of the earth. And Peter is excited about sharing with them. Believing is seeing. If you believe in Jesus, you are seeing him in the spiritual sense. Believers did not see Jesus as Peter did, but they loved him sight unseen. Many of us here t- today, not, I, don't, I don't see anybody that's uh, 2,000 years old in this crowd. Some of us maybe look like that, but, but I don't see anybody that old. None of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. But I want to tell you, we will. I want to give you some exciting news. I want to herald it like the newsboy. We have not, but we will. Jesus is coming again, and we go, every eye shall see him. Uh, every person that knows him as Lord and Savior will see him. And Peter says, Believing is seeing him. And then Peter says, Believing is receiving. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You're receiving something that was promised to those disciples that walk with Him. You're receiving the goal of the promises of God, and that is the salvation of your souls. The only thing that's going to be eternal about you is your soul." Now, I know we uh, like to pretty up our bodies, but I want to tell you, one day they're going to decay. Uh, several years ago, I saw an open casket that had been buried for years. I want to tell you, there wasn't nothing in there but bones. and Some of those were like Powder. You can pretty up yourself all you want to. One day you're going to die. And the only thing that's going to be eternal about you is your soul. Now, God's going to give you a new body, and that's wonderful. I sure hope it's better than the one I got now. But he's going to give you a new body, but your soul will never die. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying that believing is receiving. Believers can rejoice because they're receiving the rewards rewards that were promised, namely the salvation of their souls. Now, when you talk about salvation, you have to understand that the Bible talks about salvation in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. And sometimes that gets confusing. Sometimes the Bible says you were saved. That's in the past. What were you saved from? You were saved from the penalty of sin because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so you were saved from the penalty of sin. And then the Bible talks about you are being saved. That's in the present. You're being saved from the power of sin over your life. And that's why there's a war going on in your life, in my life, every single day. We're warring against sin, against domination from sin. And we are being saved as we go along. And then the the Bible says that, that we will be saved in the future. Now we're being saved now from the power of sin. We will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. And also from the wrath to come. God's going to rain down his wrath over over sin. And we're going to escape that in the fact that Jesus Christ has paid our sin debt. That's why that song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he's washed it whiter than snow. And so, uh, believing is receiving. But he also says that salvation is a mystery. Verses 10 through 12. It's a mystery. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. He says, salvation is a mystery. Salvation is not based on merely the writings of men, but on the writings of the God, the Word of God, the writings of God. Prophets, even though they were proclaiming the will of God in their life, did not understand. How could Abraham understand in Genesis 12 When it says, and the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, all the world will be blessed. Who can understand when when the writers of the Old Testament said, and the the Messiah, God's gift that's going to come is going to sit on the throne of David. David had been dead for years. Who could understand that? But yet they wrote about it in the Old Testament. They told about, about how that uh, there, was, there was coming a time when God would send a Messiah. The prophets did not understand all that the Holy Spirit had inspired them to write. That's why the Scripture says in the New Testament that holy, holy men of old wrote down the Scriptures as the Spirit I- influenced them. You see, The Old Testament, they did not understand the the full revelation of the Word of God. The prophets did not understand all that the Holy Spirit had encouraged them to author. Who could have understood some of those things in the Old Testament? Then he says even angels. Want to look into that. Angels who are heavenly beings who probably had rubbed shoulders with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, they did not understand salvation. When I thought about that, I thought about there should be a, a probably a conversation going on in heaven. And I imagine an angel's, angel's talking. Probably it went something like this. And this is my sanctified imagination, by the way. Probably the angels were talking one day, and they said, look, look down on earth. That dark, sinful soul is not worth anything. And somebody's taking the time to share with them the good news. How can Jesus, the perfect one, die for a sinner like that? It looks hopeless. But look, the sinner is down on his knees. He's confessing his sins and his failures. And and look, I can't believe it, but he's being washed whiter than snow. How can this be? It's happening right now. I don't believe it, but I'm seeing it with my very eyes. How is this possible? Maybe one of them spoke up and said, but maybe this is what Isaiah meant when he said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And another one maybe piped up and said, maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said, I will put your sins as far from you as the east is from the west, and I will remember them no more. Beloved, you know something that even the prophets and the angels do not know. You are privy to information that they were puzzled over. Angels were searching, intently searching. Prophets were We're with great care trying to find out about this great salvation. You are privy to something that even prophets and angels do not know. You have received salvation through Jesus Christ. Beloved, you are recipients of salvation that prophets and angels do not not understand. So therefore, it should be something that we rejoice about. We know what happens when a person gives their heart and life to Jesus. We know how it works in our life. If you've experienced that salvation, you can't explain it, but you know what happened. Then we come to verse 13. And I like to think, verse 13, that <clears throat> there's a, that first word, therefore, is the biggest therefore in the Bible. In light of all that, that Peter has shared, what is therefore? Well, he tells us three practical suggestions us. First of all, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. I like to give that a little more simple explanation. Think straight. Think straight. You see, only the person that is guided by the Holy Spirit of God can think straight. You wonder why These people think the way they do because they are mentally challenged. They're spiritually challenged. Their thinking is all screwed up. So the first thing we need to do is gird up the loins of our mind, begin to think straight. Only the Spirit of God that lives within us can help us think straight. The Apostle Paul, writing in the 12th chapter of Romans, says, uh, therefore... uh, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. So think straight. Secondly, he says, be sober, calm, and collected. I'm expanding that word a little bit. And, and, and really what that means is act straight. You need to act straight. Only the Spirit of God can enable you to act, act straight. Do not be conformed to this world uh, Paul says in Romans 12, but be, uh, renew your minds. Uh, the patterns of this world will not help you to find a relationship with God. So act straight. And then the last thing is we need to hold tight. Hold tight. Therefore, prepare your minds for actions, be self controlled, set your Hope fully on the grace that is given to you when Jesus is revealed. You need to hold on tight. I remember when I was a young father, uh, one day my son and I were crossing the street. He was about three or four years old. And uh, it, it, the traffic was kind of heavy. So we had to watch exactly when the lights changed. And I grabbed him by the hand real hard. And here we went across the street. When we got on the other side, he turned around and looked at me and he said, Daddy, I hold on tight. Well, he didn't know I was doing the holding. And you see what happens. You think you're holding on to God, but he's got got his arm wrapped around you. He's got a holy grip on you. You're not holding on. He's holding on. And so we we need to... think straight and we need to act straight and we need to hold tight because you have something that is more precious than gold. You have an eternal heaven, inheritance in heaven. You have an eternal inheritance in heaven. It's been guaranteed by God himself. You know Christ is your Lord and Savior. Your salvation and your inheritance is guaranteed. But well, what about those who have a, a knowledge of God but not a relationship with God? Well, I, I hesitate to tell you this, but I've got to. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. And there's only one way to have a relationship with Christ, and that is to get rid of everything in your life that shouldn't be there and give your life to the Lord. And be obedient. When he leads you, you go. Your greatest answer to God is, yes, Lord, what next? Yes, Lord, what next? I've been doing this 61 years. Almost every morning I have to say, yes, Lord, what next? Because I know he's got something in store for those that love him. And I would hate for someone to see me, see my life, hear my message, have a relationship with me and not know Jesus because he's my only hope. And heaven is our promise for all eternity. My question to you today is, Do you know this Christ who loved you so much that he died on a cruel cross for you? And even in the midst of your trials and tribulations, he still loves you. Do you know him? If you don't, you can find him today. He's as near as a prayer or a breath away. And all you have to do is say, Lord, I need you. And I want you to come into my life and forgive me of my sin and I want you to give me that promise of eternal life and that home in heaven. It's as simple as that. You may be here today and you've been coming to our church from time to time and you feel like this is the place where God wants you to be. We invite you to come. I don't remember a time when somebody's come and said, I want to be a part of this faith fellowship that we've said, no, you can't. I don't remember a time. There might have been a time somewhere in the history. I don't know. But you see, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest in your souls. And God invites you to come be a part of his, his work force. You see, we're not looking for people just to come and sit down looking for people who will come and help us do what God called this church to do. I invite you to come. Maybe you, there's a prayer request on your heart that you just need to come and breathe that prayer in the presence of, of the Lord today. I invite you to come. Maybe pray. Thank you, Lord, for the presence, your presence in this service today. Thank you for how you've uh, spoken to our hearts, how you've spoken to our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we'll simply say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. What next? Hear my. Send me like Isaiah of old. And I pray, dear Father, that we'll have those who will say yes today, because this is the day of salvation. Yesterday's gone, tomorrow may never get here, but only today is the day that we have. And I pray, dear Father, that you will speak to hearts today, that you will cause people to know that there is one way to heaven. And that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray it in His precious name. Amen.